On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tom Ward about the theory of divine ideas. So we cover all sorts of topics related to divine ideas. What are they? Who has espoused ver- various versions or theories of divine ideas in the Christian tradition? What are the different senses that go along with those? Why would God possibly not be worthy of devotion if abstractionism about divine ideas was true? If God has ideas of creation, does this deny divine simplicity? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we'd think this was going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And in doing that, we have decided and hopefully are accomplishing promoting certain virtues such as curiosity, charity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think these sorts of things embody the ethos of what we want to promote, but it's also something we find in Scripture and we find throughout the great tradition where there's a an impulse to be both rigorous, but also gentle, peaceable, loving, and open to reason, and all those great things. So with that in mind, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Tom Ward, and we're going to talk about his recent book on divine ideas from, I think it's in the Cambridge Element series. So the great thing about the Cambridge Element series is it's short, it's readable. Um, I think lay people can get this. So, I mean, they've got to be a motivated lay person to some degree, but I think they can get <laughs> this sort of this, this level of academic writing and it's, it's short. So anybody can handle it. You know, you're thinking 800 pages total max, not, you know, it's like, I think it's got end notes instead of footnotes. So things that make it more readable, accessible. And one of the great things about Dr. Ward is that he's really smart on these things, and yet he communicates them in a way that I think people can understand. So I found this volume especially helpful for thinking about this topic, and I think a lot of our listeners, you guys who are listening, this is a topic you're interested in. So I think this is going to be a fun conversation, and I'm looking forward to it. So Dr. Ward, before we jump into thinking about divine ideas and that the, the way the Christian tradition has thought about that and all the questions that go with it, can you give me a brief biographical sketch of your life? So you don't have to tell me, you know, what you were doing when you're 10 years old, but what are you up to now? And what is it that got you interested in thinking about the divine ideas and how that has been shaped and thought about through the Christian tradition? Sure thing. Well, thanks, Jordan and Brandon, for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I'm a philosophy professor at Baylor University right now. I've been here for five years. Native, native Southern Californian, spent pretty much all my life there until five years ago, but loving Texas, slowly learning how to call myself a Texan instead of just someone who lives in Texas. Um, married, five kids. We live here in town in Waco. Uh, academically, I mostly work on topics in medieval philosophy with some forays into philosophy of religion and metaphysics. Uh, but mostly I'm, I'm pretty historically based. Dun Scotus, uh, Franciscan friar who died in 1308, is my main uh, uh, area of research. I've just uh, written a book on Dun Scotus called Ordered by Love, which is a general introduction to Scotus intended for a non-academic audience. 
And the, the Divine Ideas book, Jordan, I really appreciate all the things you said about it because it's, it's really what I was going for. I mean, it's, it's an academic book, but it's, uh, it was intended for a much broader audience than just people who read journal articles in philosophy of religion and medieval philosophy. And I, so part of the reason for writing it was just to be able to communicate this uh, topic that I think is important and beautiful to as wide a range of people as, as I could as a thinker and writer. And the topic itself is something that, uh, that I really started thinking about all the way back in my undergrad days, getting on 20 years ago now. Uh, I had a professor who described himself early on as a Christian Platonist, and I had no idea what that meant. And then as we uh, pursued introduction to philosophy together in a kind of theological context, at my alma mater, Biola University, I, w I was captivated by this idea that Plato's forms might be ideas in God's mind, uh, and you get the best of Platonic metaphysics while still being able to be a Christian. And so it just kind of lingered in my thinking and in my imagination over the years, and by the time I was getting close to tenure, I thought maybe I'd I could uh, risk, so to speak, uh, being a bit more theological in my academic writing. And so, so that, that's how the book was born. Awesome. So uh, my first question is just about what the, the theory of divine ideas is, and you sort of answered this in your introduction, but maybe this is a good spot to, to give us any concepts that we kind of need in place that the listeners would need to know just to have a lay of the land and understand you know, what this conversation is going to be about. So th there are a few ways to kind of get oriented here. One way is is historically, if you think of, um, about someone like Philo of, of Alexandria, who's an extremely important figure in this tradition, probably not the first person to um, advocate a kind of Christian or, or theistic uh, Platonism, but, um, but really an, an important source for the later tradition. So he essentially takes Plato's forms, these uh, intelligible, abstract exemplars of material things here below, takes this realm of forms that Plato seems to have believed in and taught, uh, and squeezed all of that into the mind of uh, the God of the Old Testament, and uh, imagined God prior to creation sort of thinking up the whole plan of the world and using these ideas as a sort of blueprint or model of the world that he's about to create. And, and, and Philo lays down this uh, principle that would become extremely important for the subsequent, what I call classical tradition of divine ideas. I'm thinking roughly from Philo in the first century all the way through the Middle Ages, um, and, and beyond, though not in contemporary discourse so much. And that principle is that uh, the divine ideas are primarily meant to secure God's rationality in creating the world. So it, it, the, the, motiv the theological motivation for a theory of divine ideas has to do with uh, a doctrine of creation. Um, by contrast, in the contemporary uh, literature, the question of divine conceptualism or divine theories of divine ideas 
uh, arise in consideration of whether uh, whether theism is compatible with Platonism, and then sometimes a, 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 a conceptualist view or a divine ideas view might be offered as uh, a theoretical option that is more that plays more nicely with theism than just a, a, a strict Platonism would. So there, in the contemporary literature, you don't get as much of this emphasis on creation as the uh, motivation for a theory of divine ideas. So when I think about divine ideas, some of the names that come to mind, probably Augustine, probably Thomas Aquinas, sort of pe- those are the big names that come up, and maybe others like Scotus. Um, so when you think tradition-wise, who are the other figures that maybe aren't as well-known who are really important in this conversation that we should be aware of if we want to understand all of the different distinction, all the different ways that the models have been shaped? Who are those sorts of people? Yeah, St. Augustine, most definitely. Um, he he is the main influence on scholastic thinkers. Um, some of his sayings about the divine ideas become almost uh, almost canonical in the sense that when when later scholastic authors would discuss divine ideas they would they would quote and sometimes you know you see some of the very same passages getting quoted and requoted by different authors and then uh, the scholastic thinker wh- whoever he is would give his own little spin but taking Augustine as the point of departure but also really important here, uh, would be uh, Pseudo Dionysius and the the treatise on divine names. Um, uh, Saint Maximus the Confessor in his uh, seventh uh, Ambiguum, I think. I think it's number seven. Has w- this wonderful passage about uh, connecting up what we would call the divine ideas with the one logos of God and distinguishing between the logos and all of the logoi that are somehow contained in that one Logos. Um, Anselm in the 11th century had uh, a a fairly rigorous theory of divine ideas. And then by the time you get to the 13th century, it's just everyone has a theory of divine ideas. Uh, It's just taken for granted. Within the Franciscan tradition, uh, you get... uh, uh, an emphasis on God's intellect containing an actual infinity of ideas of possible creatures. Uh, whereas in Thomas Aquinas and Dominicans, you get more of an emphasis on the way in which God's self-reflection on his one simple essence can somehow suffice for uh, God's ideas of all possible creatures. So there are some important differences between these different religious orders and the way that they cash out a theory, but um, uh, they're, they're all really on the same page. I think of William of Ockham as kind of bringing an end to uh, the medieval, or the classical tradition of a theory of divine ideas. Now, having said that, I'm uh, a little embarrassingly ig- ignorant of what is sometimes called second scholasticism or Baroque scholasticism, um, uh, let alone um, uh, Protestant scholasticism. Uh, 
And so that there is a that there are sequels to the story that I haven't yet tracked down myself. Um, but of course, in in later uh, very very late scholastic authors like Francisco Suarez, you get a continuation of the of the classical theory. But nothing so far that I've found that is uh, that, that really originally builds on the work of the of the great 13th and 14th, early 14th century. So would Occam be considered part of the divine ideas tradition at all in any sense? He, I, I describe him as paying lip service to it. Uh, he, he, he wants to say, well, yeah, everyone says there are divine ideas. Of course, God has divine ideas of creatures, but what, what we really should mean by that is that God is, uh, aware of his own omnipotence and simply in, in knowing his own power, which ranges over anything that is non-contradictory, God thereby has an idea of anything that he can create. Um, it's, it's a paltry theory compared to what we find in Aquinas or Scotus or Bonaventure or Anselm, let alone uh, Maximus the Confessor or John Scotus Ereugena. Um, so it, it really does feel like you, it, the tradition sort of peters out in Occam. So in the book, you you walk through a, a series of, of different ways of understanding the phrase of um, having something in mind, God's having something in mind. So help us understand those different senses and then why that's so important for, for how we, um, you know, move further down the road and understanding divine ideas. Yeah, good. I, you know, there's something... Um, that it can feel um, impetuous to explore divine psychology in this sort of way. I mean, so one has to, um, I, I think it's important for a theologian or philosopher to just have a, a deep humility and in trying to work through all of these sorts of issues. They're very difficult. But part of the reason for attributing ideas to God comes from the way in which we already attribute knowledge to God, and in particular, omniscience. God knows everything, and we might describe an idea simply as whatever it is in or about God by which he knows what he knows. In the book, I try to flesh out some ways in which we could talk about having an idea in mind, and then maybe uh, by a kind of analogy, apply these different senses to God you know, sometimes we have something in mind simply by picturing it, uh, the way that you might picture the a, a song, you know, sort of play a song in your mind or recall an image. You know, the I could I could right now uh, bring to mind an image of my kids, for example. Um, but not all of our thinking is picture thinking like that. You might think that there that maybe God, if he's a, a pure spirit, doesn't picture think um, the way that we can. So, but we also, you know, we think about definitions or um, mathematical objects, um, logical axioms or theorems. You know, I, I can have the principle of non-contradiction in mind, for example. I'm not picturing anything when I do that, but uh, I, I can know when I'm thinking about that very principle. And similarly, I can think about the properties of a triangle, even if I'm not picturing a triangle. You know, I might think about uh, uh, an, 
an algebraic expression of of the nature of a triangle, for example. Um, then we also have stuff in mind when we have preferences or intentions, um, and even when we, um, you know, ar arguably, certain types of knowing how to do something requires attributing to the know the knower the knowhower some kind of having in mind like you know f there, there's a fam pretty famous tennis player who was big in the 90s pete sampras and he once once was in an interview and uh, the interviewer said you had an amazing game uh what match what was what was going through your mind as you were playing at such a high level and he deadpans absolutely nothing was going through my mind. Um, and I think probably he was right. It, you know, that, that kind of know-how tennis at a very high level, um, it has more to do with, with muscle memory and focus rather than thinking about the strokes, but other kinds of know-how, like being able to do calculus, for example, I think it makes sense to say that there's something like, um, the knowledge of calculus that is in someone's mind. Now, does, do any of those different senses of having in mind give us a rich philosophy of mind or 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 anything like that? No, um, that's beyond my qualifications as a philosopher. But um, I, I think that there are some pretty ordinary, everyday senses of having in mind that don't seem too implausible to attribute to God in some kind of analogical way, given given that we're already committed to talking about God as knowing and thinking. So one question I have based on reading the book, which again I, I found fabulous, you mentioned in here, I guess at the very well at the very end, I want to tell tell everybody check out. There's this wonderful chart uh, that where you kind of cash out all the various views. You know, do you think this? Yes or no? Go here. Yes or no? Go here. And I always find those super helpful. So you kind of categorize the I guess almost the two broadest aspects as abstractionism and then theories of divine ideas. And I think you kind of argue that God would not be worthy of devotion if abstractionism were true. And I think you even called abstractionism idolatrous. So maybe walk me through, why do you think that's the case? And maybe just quickly define abstractionism so we can make sure to understand, you know, what we are calling idolatrous. Yeah, good. Um, this is one of the maybe more provocative uh, things I say in the book. But here's the thought. What I call abstractionism in the book is uh, probably more commonly called Platonism in contemporary metaphysics. And it's, the, it's simply the idea that there are such things as abstract objects. Now, abstract objects, at least the way that they are understood in contemporary metaphysics, are... Uh, really existing things that are causally unconnected to the material world, but which are somehow the uh, uh, properties or propositions or states of affairs, which uh, things in the concrete world exemplify or instantiate. One key feature of abstract objects as they're under, understood today is that they uh, are not caused to exist by anything. They exist eternally. 
So if there are such things as abstract objects, then uh, in addition to God, there are some other uncreated things, namely all the abstract objects. And that in itself might be enough to give a Christian pause. Um, everything else but God depends on God for its existence. So if anything else, just by virtue of being supposed to be uncreated, uh, would be a sort of rival to God. But I think the situation for Platonism is even, or abstractionism is even worse than that. Because if you think about what the abstractionist holds um, about properties in general, you could think about a property like goodness or wisdom or any of the kinds of attributes that we uh, ascribe to God. And there you'd say, well, there's, there's God who is good, all good. And then on the abstractionist view, in addition to God, there is the property, goodness. And goodness is that property by which all good things are good including God. So there would be some sense in which God is derivative from goodness and various other great-making properties um, insofar as God exemplifies them. Now, I, I ran this sort of criticism by someone who was himself an abstractionist, a wonderful philosopher who, who I won't name in this context, but um, he said, well, Ward, you're missing the point because these Abstract objects don't self-exemplify. So it's not like the property of goodness is itself good. It's just the property of goodness. And there I want to... I'm not convinced that's adequate because I think that even if properties don't self-exemplify, even if the property of goodness is not itself good, we still have to say it is that by which all things are good. And so is the ultimate metaphysical source of any goodness whatsoever. And I think that uh, to have something like that in your ontology um, is to have, is thereby to, to have an idol. Uh, even if you don't, even if you're not bowing down to the property of goodness, um, You've, you've allowed something in that is a, uh, a kind of explainer of God and therefore a, a rival to God. Now, in the book, you, you use an illustration about Murphy's cat um, as an, like an explanatory tool uh, to prove a point. So um, maybe just talk me through the, the scenario about Murphy's cat and then, and then how you're, you're using that for, uh, for your own purposes here. Because I think it's pretty important. So I... I think that's helpful. It was a helpful illustration. Yeah, th thanks. I, I owe it to Mark Murphy, a uh, philosopher at Georgetown, and and he he gives this this wonderful little story as an example of, for his own purposes in a book called God and Moral Law, which came out about ten years ago. And uh, he early on in that book, he is trying to motivate. Um, uh, uh, an ethical view uh, on which God, either God's commands or God's uh, creation of a world that has a sort of natural law to it, that God has some sort of deep explanatory role in the content of morality. 
and it might be obvious to many Christian thinkers, but he's he's motivating this uh, you know, as a philosopher and trying to incorporate God into his ethical system. And he um, he says there that if if you believe in God, given what we think about God, you know, he's, he's good, he cares about human beings, and so on, you would expect he's the creator of everything. If you believe in that sort of God, it makes sense that God would have something important to do with ethics. So that's, that's the claim. And, and put like that, it sounds almost trivial, but what it's meant to do is, is kind of uh, reorient philosophical method. And when I came across, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the cat story in just a second, but when I came across this cat story, as his illustration of this point about God having something to do with morality. It was almost a revolution in the way that I approach philosophical questions as a Christian. So here's the cat story. Suppose you set out a bowl of milk in the kitchen overnight, and then you come back in the morning and the, and the bowl is empty. Now, there are lots and lots of logically consistent explanations of why the milk is gone. But once it's added into the mix that you have a cat who was in the house all night and the cat likes milk, then the, uh, the only plausible theory of how the milk disappeared is that the cat drank it. Why? Because the cat is really relevant to, uh, the, the cat is just the sort of thing that would be drinking the milk and causing it to disappear. So in his own case, uh, you're wondering what is the ultimate ground of moral norms? And oh, by the way, you have a perfect God who loves human beings in your ontology. Don't go looking elsewhere. You have the, you, you have the main, uh, source of explanation right here in God. So once I got to thinking about that general method in philosophy, I started thinking, well, in the end, I mean, maybe maybe everything needs to have God as a main explanation. And, and that might be right. You know, maybe there isn't such a thing as a truly secular philosophy um, uh, or a totally the theistic neutral philosophy, but certainly on the question of uh, abstract objects, whether or not they exist, how they relate to God, I think that God as a creator, as an omniscient being, as uh, completely awe from himself, totally underivative, given all of these attributes that we ascribe to God, it just seems preposterous to me that we would go looking elsewhere for an explanation of things like properties or uh, mathematical objects. Let's let's try to connect this to uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity, if we can, because this is, I know, a question that um, a lot of the listeners are going to have. If, if there are these divine ideas, then does that mean there are parts in God? And where, where do we go from here when it comes to, to wanting to have uh, a, a doctrine of divine ideas, but not wanting to compromise or do away with simplicity? And so you talk about in the book... Um, I think you worded it as like the strict interpretation of, of simplicity, and then you want to kind of steer us in a different direction away from that. So um, help us understand how we should, what route we should go when it comes to simplicity. Yeah, th thanks, Brandon. I think this is the hardest issue um, 
not just for my particular take on divine ideas, but on uh, divine ideas theories in general. So we're, we're up against a few different constraints. On the one hand, it seems that insofar as God is the uh, creator ex nihilo of the world, and that God is not just a generic first cause, but is truly a, a creator, creates as a personal being, that we've got to say that God knows what he's doing. And so then it looks like there's a kind of mapping or, or isomorphism between the world that God creates and the content of the divine mind. And insofar as the content of the divine mind truly does represent what he's, so to speak, about to make, um, it looks like there's going to be a kind of plurality or diversity within the divine thinking. And that seems to be deeply in tension with the traditional doctrine of divine simplicity, which I take very seriously. It's a controversial uh, view nowadays. Historically, you know, as probably most of your listeners know, it was taken for granted. Uh, but nowadays, it is something that's sort of debated. And uh, you meet more and more people who are willing to abandon simplicity, uh, partly due to considerations like the tension I just raised. So one um, one consideration here that I think is important is to really think through the historical reasons for affirming divine simplicity. Um, there, I think there is within the philosophical tradition, certainly of Platonism, some kind of intuition that, uh, uh, lacking parts as such is better than having parts or be, being one as such is better than being many. I myself have not been able to feel the force of that intuition. I, I I don't share it. So instead, what I look to is some of the arguments that have been offered for simplicity that come from other sources. So one thought is this, um, to have parts uh, and so be complex is, is somehow to depend on those parts for one's existence. And insofar as we think that God uh, exists uh, from no source whatsoever, um, uh, that, it, that, that God is completely self-explanatory, well, then God wouldn't have parts because if he did, he would be somehow derivative from those parts. Another uh, route to simplicity is to, is, is to suppose that if something has parts, then in principle, it can be uh, broken apart or it uh, requires some assembly or something like that. And this is something that Aquinas, for example, took for granted, that anything with parts has potentiality. Uh, and so that compromises the divine impassibility. So we have these two attributes of God that seem very important, uh, uh, that God is uh, in, in potency to no sort of change. There's nothing that could bring about any sort of change in God and, um, and that God is an underivative entity. So simplicity then secures these because God lacks parts. And so he lacks the, der the derivativeness and the, uh, 
and potency. But now suppose suppose we had this. Uh, suppose you just thought parts need not work like that. <laughs> that that though, that's a view about parts that is taken from metaphysics. There's nothing particularly theological about those metaphysical claims about the nature of parthood. So what? Maybe it's open to us simply to say, well, in the God case, we could admit some sort of uh, primitive or brute um, complexity where uh, derivativeness and uh, and potency just don't arise, that God just is the infinite being who has these com complex of aspects, but is not subject to... Uh, uh, but but doesn't have parts the way that anything else we know of has parts. I think that's a kind of promising route um, is to question the metaphysical assumptions that lead people like Aquinas to affirm simplicity while still holding on to um, an understanding of God that simplicity is meant to secure. Um, now, whether whether we could pull this off in any sort of really rigorous way, I, I don't know. And the book, uh, the simplicity discussion in the book, you know, for me is the the least worked out, the, the sketchiest. But I do, I am inspired by this idea from Duns Scotus, um, who thought that if we reflect sufficiently on divine infinity, we get to um, the closest thing we can get to uh, with the doctrine of simplicity, short of the you know, the, the very strict Thomistic version. And, and the way that it's supposed to work is this. Uh, suppose that God not only has all of the traditional attributes that we take him to have, but has all of these in an infinite mode. So God is infinitely good, infinitely wise, et cetera, et cetera. And then you might think that it's that plausibly having, uh, in order to have any one of these attributes in an infinite mode, God must have uh, on pain of contradiction, every other attribute also in an infinite mode. And so, for example, um, if if uh, being loving is essentially to will the good, and therefore being infinitely loving is to will the good perfectly, then you might think that to be infinitely loving, you would have to know, you would have to be infinitely knowledgeable or omniscient so that you would know the good, so as to be able to love it perfectly. And there you get a kind of logical, you know, mutual entailment or interdependence between all of the divine attributes that makes it uh, far from arbitrary that God would have a complex of attributes in just the way that he has. Uh, there would need to be no explanation of why these attributes go together in God because they could only, each one, any one of them could only exist at all if all of the others existed in conjunction with it. So that's, uh, uh, that, that is, I think, a worthwhile route to explore in thinking through problems of divine simplicity. I can't claim that I've really reached the bottom of that route, uh, to mix metaphors, <laughs> but I, uh, but I, I am interested in exploring that more, uh, perhaps in later work. In your research on the divine ideas tradition, it seems to me, at least in my understanding of the tradition, there's 
most everybody affirms divine ideas. Most everybody wants to affirm divine simplicity. So do you think when it comes to simplicity, there is a pretty ubiquitous way of understanding it in a strict Thomistic way? Or is there more flexibility like the SCOTUS route, where when people affirm divine ideas, they're playing a little bit fast and loose with divine simplicity? What's striking to me is that the classical authors, and again, I mean patristic and medieval authors here, but authors in this classical divine ideas tradition, you're right, Jordan, they all affirm simplicity. They all have some sort of theory of divine ideas. And they you rarely see anyone problematizing the conjunction of those two views, you know, raising puzzles about how these can both be true. You know, someone like um, Anselm, you know, he just thinks it's obvious that, of course, God is simple. And of course, God has a plurality of ideas. Um, Aquinas is the one that um, I think comes closest to recognizing that we really need some explanation here uh, of how these two things are possible together. And he offers one that, um, you know, I, I think probably isn't totally successful, but he's, he's aware of the problem. And that's, but, but from the tradition as a whole, it's the lack of um, acknowledgement of this as a problem that is striking. So as a modern person who's reading these people, I, you know, I, if I'm going to err in reading old texts, I'm going to, I'm going to err on the side of being too deferential um, rather than too critical. And so when I go back to these old texts, I, I think, well, what am I missing as a contemporary person such that I'm concerned about the coherence of these two views Whereas they weren't. I mean, maybe I've just missed something, and and it's they who had it right in their uh, relative, you know, innocence or naivety about this. And I'm I'm open to that. Um, uh, but more, sorry, more directly to your question, the uh, Scotus's little innovation here, the, the tweak on simplicity that I sketched out a couple minutes ago. This is pretty novel in the in the tradition. It's it's you know almost radical <laughs> um, because in in a very straightforward sense, Scotus simply rejects simplicity. Um, he explicitly affirms it. He argues for simplicity. He gives six or seven arguments for divine simplicity, but the view, the actual what he calls simplicity is a view about the divine essence on which the divine essence is not perfectly simple. And there's just no way around that. So in that sense, he is not a novel uh, theologian. But um, and, and, and so you might look to Scotus as uh, so, someone who is, in this sense, modern, because he does explicitly recognize uh, or, or attribute some incoherence to uh, a stricter view of divine simplicity and not just the, the divine ideas, but the variety of divine attributes. So um, this isn't this, this challenge for simplicity is not um, it doesn't uniquely arise on divine ideas theory. A anyone who's willing to attribute to God more than one attribute uh, has to confront this somehow. 
So uh, another puzzle that comes with the divine ideas tradition that I think is uniquely interesting is thinking through, does the fact that God has the idea of everything he could ever create, does that make God panentheistic? Does that make him pantheistic? I mean, if God's ideas are ultimately about God, doesn't this end up meaning that creation is just necessary, whether it's an emanation of some sort or, or however that cashes out? It seems that that is a serious worry if, if we want to have a strong version of the divine ideas. So how do we think about that? Yeah, I, I think you're right to to raise the worry. And in someone like um, John Scotus Eriugena, not to be confused with John Dun Scotus, um, I, th- I think he might have been a pantheist. <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's really hard. I mean, he has a theory of divine ideas. Um, but it's really hard to find a clear distinction between God between creation and sort of the content of God's mind. Um, so, so I think even within the tradition, there's at least one example of someone who found it hard to draw this line. Um, I think there's a, a really similar worry about a kind of divine idealism where, you know, the whole world just you know what it is to be the world is to be thought by god a kind of barkleyanism um so i i think i, I certainly think that a divine ideas theorist can avoid this but you just you have to be explicit about certain things you know to lay down a few extra guidelines or markers so on on the one hand we do concede that God can, so to speak, rep- represent the whole world to himself in his mind. Uh, and even, you know, not that it would be like this. I don't mean to be presumptuous here, but, you know, sort of play it out like a, like a movie, all of, all of history. And if, if that's all that God had done, would, would that suffice for there to be a world? Well... I mean, well, God could do whatever He wants, but but I don't think that that that's not what we mean certainly by creation. So then we we have God doing this other thing. He has the representation of the whole world, and then He has this creation ex nihilo, which is deeply mysterious. Um, but God somehow manages to make something that is not Himself, but is expressive of something that he already is. Uh, so takes his infinite essence, you know, compresses it into some finite representation of himself at, and then takes that finite representation of himself and creates in reality uh, the world as a kind of divine self-expression, fine, very finite, uh, limited, divine self-expression, but divine self-expression all the same. And yet it is, it is something other than God. And that's, that's where as a philosopher and a theologian, I just kind of bask. Uh, I, I really have nothing to say about what the act of creation 
is. I mean, it's not assembling things. It's not manipulating an environment. Um, how does something get outside of God such that it's dependent on God, expressive of God, but emphatically not God? I have no idea. <laughs> but but we're uh, but I'm committed to it, and and I think that there's nothing about the divine ideas uh, tradition that. Um, that threatens that uh, God-creature distinction, as long as we're careful about the difference between God uh, representing creatures to himself independent of an actual creation, and then God actually making a created world uh, on the basis of those representations. Do you think that that uh, suffices to avoid concerns about pantheism, or, or is there a a deeper threat. I don't know. I mean, I think as you explain that, it it almost sounds to me like it doesn't matter if you have a divine ideas view or not. If you affirm creation ex nihilo and you affirm the radical dependence on God and all those things, you're going to have the same problem uh, and the same sort of solution. So Mm -hmm. it's not divine ideas doesn't do anything unique to cause challenges versus any other view, at least as I'm trying to think about it right now in real time. I don't know if that makes sense. I think that's right. So one other question I wanted to have you spend some time on before we end is your own particular view you put forth. So I think you called it the containment exemplarist view. And just to be honest with you, I mean, I, my, my THM, I did that under Greg Welty. So he's kind of a conceptualist. Um, Brian Leftow, I think is similar in in some ways to, to Greg's view. So just, can you explain to me what is your actual view on the divine ideas? And then just because I'm naturally curious, how might that differ from somebody like Greg's, who I've found just not doing a lot of study on it, quite attractive? Yeah, I, I think that um, with just a few tweaks, um, Welty's conceptualism would would easily be my my backup option if, you know, if, if I... If I were convinced that my own little take was false, I would be a kind of modified Weltian. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just just briefly the the difference that so the conceptualists um, and what I'm calling the exemplarists are united against the Platonists or the abstractionists, and uh, and I think they're I th- you know so in that sense we're allies. So that we equally preserve uh, the worship worthiness of God, divine aseity and sovereignty. Um, And so in that sense, theologically, there's uh, not a lot to separate them. But there is a, um, I think, a slight explanatory advantage to exemplarism, and it's this. Um, The conceptualist view, at least as Welty's version, doesn't offer an explanation of the source of God's own ideas. And so you get, so by the, so you get these um, objects in the divine mind, which are not to be identified with God, not uh, derivative from God's essence. Also, you know, thankfully not derivative from a platonic realm or anything like that, but, but they're um, they just happen to be there. 
the they're they're this it's the structure of intelligibility that for its for whatever reality it has is dependent on god as ideas but for its content is it doesn't depend on god it's just there the exemplarist view by contrast um offers an explanation both of the uh, reality of the uh, of these uh, concepts and the content of these concepts it offers an, an explanation of the content of the concepts by making them somehow about god's own essence so god in thinking about himself yields you know a sort of vision of the whole and you might think that that one simple perfect uh divine idea just is the son eternally generated from the father um but then also that divine self reflection yields uh finite ways in which god can be represented and these would constitute god's ideas of possible creatures from which he can select some to make up a created world and so in that sense we would consider everything in the every positive reality in the creaturely world as having some kind of um uh relation relationship of similarity to the divine essence however limited so i think that that's on just the grounds of pure metaphysics i think that there's a slight explanatory advantage there and then i think also um the, the you know the the broadly augustinian um expansion of uh the biblical idea that human beings have been created in god's image you know not not just it's not just human beings who are similar to god in some way it's all creatures all creatures are similitudes of god and then human beings have this special status as having been made in god's image so an exemplarist view kind of captures that augustinian sense that there's something about creation that really is expressive of what god is and that i think is um edifying from a a kind of pastoral or or mystical perspective um you know it's not that you know we're not tree worshipers or anything like that but but there's a kind of reverence for nature that is warranted or, or better warranted on this view if if there really is something about divinity that is expressed in any kind of creature yeah um that's good so i, I want to recommend a couple of your other resources so you you've got divine ideas that with with the cambridge elements so for those who've been listening i know you're going to enjoy that so i tell you go get a copy of it um but you've also written other things i mean you've got a book john dunn scotus on parts holes and hylomorphism which i think probably a lot of our listeners would find very interesting um it's with brill so you may not be able to afford it but your library can so i tell your library to go get it and you mentioned the ordered by love book which I need to go get a copy of it because I want to learn more about Dun Scotus. And maybe, I mean, here's a question. You've done a lot of work on Scotus. It looks like you got a translation out on him. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who want to learn more about Scotus but have no ability to read 
a significant portion. So it, do you know if there are plans to translate more of his stuff? Are there places that people should go if they want to know, know more about SCOTUS? Um, what does that look like? Good. Um, y- yeah, we we have a lot of work to do to make SCOTUS more accessible. Um, partly, SCOTUS's own Latin texts have just been in such a chaotic state for so long. The um, The critical edition of his original Latin is still underway. It's not done yet. And so that's part of the problem. But um, Thomas, a, a scholar, a Scotus scholar named Thomas Williams has translated uh, a book, uh, some selected writings of Scotus on ethics, selected ethical writings, I think it's called. It's with OUP. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. There, There was something similar published in the 80s by Alan Walter, but Williams's book really uh, is an advance on that. Um, We need more translated. I'm doing my part. Uh, That translation that you mentioned is not out yet. It will come out hopefully by the end of next year. And that particular book, uh, The Treatise on the First Principle, really is this tight outline of Scotus's whole approach to natural theology. And so it will be a good kind of one-stop shop for people who are interested in scotus but in particular his uh his natural theology and then i I should also mention that 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 book ordered by love is um it's it's finished but it it too hasn't been published yet uh so look for look for that sometime awesome i know a lot of our listeners are very interested in the topic of natural theology so that will definitely excite a good segment of them so that that's awesome i'm excited for it myself now those who are listening the cool thing about dr ward is he has a website so you can go to thomasmward.com and you can find out all all about him and you got a cv there so you can keep up with all the work that he's got doing which i love it when our guests have websites because it makes life much easier to keep up with the cool stuff that you guys are writing and researching and, and working on so thank you dr ward for joining us this has been really really helpful extremely helpful Um, I love people who are thinking at a high level, who have a reverence for the church, reverence for Christ and his word. And I think you exemplify that. So I appreciate you coming on and talking with us. And for everybody who's been listening, I do. I commend all of his stuff. It's, It's careful. It's kind. It's rigorous. And it's it opens up new worlds to things that I think a lot of us are interested in. So check out his stuff and keep tuning in. So you've been tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.